embedded in those passages, and indeed there are. And uh, by the time this one's over, you may think you've heard five or six sermons today. I don't know. First Peter chapter 1, focusing on verses 6 through 9. When we lit the third candle of Advent just a few moments ago, it does reflect the joy that we have because of the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ through that first arrival. And then as we celebrate His first coming and the salvation that is ours in Him, we also look forward with great anticipation, great joy to His glorious return. As we consider the joy that we're to have as the children of God, I think it's real important that we establish and develop what is an, a true, genuine, biblical joy. It goes far beyond momentary, temporal happiness, like the kind of happiness we might feel if the Seahawks ever win another Super Bowl. Okay? Make us happy. Or, or that a child might experience on Christmas morning when they unwrap a gift that they were anticipated, had anticipated receiving. Biblical joy is a gladness that wells up in us and goes on welling up from, from the depths of our soul. It is an, an abiding, pervasive gladness, a joy that cannot be dampened by situation or circumstance. And this type of joy, this biblical joy, has only one source. It doesn't come from anything the world has to offer. That kind of joy comes from God and God alone. We're going to see today that, that joy can be experienced to the fullest when we, that is, when, when Christians think, contemplate salvation, heaven and eternal life, and Jesus himself. It's a joy that ought to fill us when we contemplate what is already ours in Jesus Christ, as well as eagerly anticipating the wonders that are, have yet to come, that are beyond our imagination, Paul says. For the shepherds, they experienced it that first night of Christ's life when they, when they came and ran into Bethlehem to see Jesus. But for us, again, we not only rejoice as we celebrate His first coming, but we rejoice as we reflect upon His sure and certain return. So in our text today, Peter's trying to get us to understand the joy that we have in salvation. He's offered this great blessing, this praise of God in verses 3 through 5, and in verse 6 he writes, In this you greatly rejoice. He calls us he calls believers to rejoice exceedingly, praising the inheritance that God has given us. Let's read verses 6 through 9. I ask you to stand and honor the reading of God's Word. 6 through 9. Follow along with me as I read. In this, he writes, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Would you pray with me? Father, Familiar words for us today, but words packed with so much power and poignancy. Father, we pray that you would help us today to set aside familiarity and allow your spirit to speak freshly to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So, verse 6, rejoice. 
Verse 7, praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. It's obvious, right, that joy and rejoicing are are part of, of the themes here that Peter wants to express. They're important themes in these verses. You back up to verses 3 through 5. He tells us that God, because of His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. And that living hope resulted in an inheritance for us as believers, which will be fully realized when Jesus returns in all of His glory. It's an inheritance that can never pe- perish, can never be defiled, can never fade away. An inheritance that's being kept for us and us for it kept in heaven, guarded by God's power. All this ought to cause us to greatly rejoice. So, so clearly, taking joy in our salvation is something Peter wants us to grasp. R.C. Sproul writes, Our joy is to come from the assurance that we have redemption in Christ. The greatest joy that a person can have is to know that his name is written in the Lamb's book of life, that he is saved and will live forever with Christ. And really, if we take a, a quick trip through Scripture, do, not, do we not see that the children of God have always been called to live with joy? The, the Psalms particularly are replete with examples. Psalm 4, 7, you, you, speaking of God, put more joy in my heart. 5, 11, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Psalm 511, or excuse me, 9-2. I will, glad, I will be glad and exult in you or rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name. And then Psalm 3211. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm 37, 4. Psalm 43. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to, my, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. And then he asked the question, Why are you cast down in despair, O my soul, given all of that? So when we receive salvation, we know Christ is our Savior. We ought to rejoice, and we ought not despair for about anything for, for very long. The believer can experience joy, abiding joy. And I would go so far as to say, as believers, it is our duty, it is our calling, it is our responsibility to be as joyful as we possibly can be, regardless of the situation. It's part of our testimony. Listen, beloved, because joy is a fruit of the Spirit, the measure of our walk, of our faithfulness, of our sanctification, is seen not only by our love, our peace, our patience, our kindness, our faithfulness, our gentleness, our self-control, our walk, our faithfulness, our sanctification is also seen by our joy. Again, it is part of our testimony before believers and those yet to believe. You could also say that God has given us His promises in His Word and the comfort of His presence in the Holy Spirit so that we can lean into them for joy regardless of the circumstances that we face. All but the most grumpy among us, and we have some curmudgeons among us. We know that. I'm curmudgeonly sometimes. We want that. That is to be characterized by joy in the midst of trials. And like those to whom Peter was writing, we'd like to believe that we would maintain our joy even when we were under great persecution. 
So, so how do we take hold of the joy that God means for us to possess? And what we have to confess, I'm not the only one in here, if we're honest, there are many times when we do not operate with genuine biblical joy. Paul commands us to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He does so because he knows that oftentimes we simply allow life to present us from doing so. The tense and, and the mood here of this verb indicate that for Christians, rejoicing is to be an habitual attitude that comes out in our behavior, that's evident in our behavior. So how do we appropriate Christian joy for our lives? How do, we how do we get to the point where we consistently live with joy? I mean real joy, not feigned joy, but real joy. And here in our text, Peter gives us some things that we must focus on if we're to live with the kind of joy that God wants us to live with. And the first reason we can live with joy is that we possess an inheritance that is safeguarded. In this, you rejoice. Literally, rejoice exceedingly. Again, the, this Peter's talking about here is our salvation that he's described back in verses 3 through 5. The eternal inheritance kept for us in heaven, imperishable, undefiled, un unfading, kept for us. Because of, of, because of that, he's saying, we should rejoice. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So obviously what, what that means is that as believers, they, they suffered in, incredibly. He goes on, For if you had compassion on those in prison, and you joy, and you, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since, why would they do that? Well, why? since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now, how powerful is that? Well, what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that you and I can joyfully deal even with the unlawful seizure of our belongings because we know we have something better. We know, we know have a, we have a better possession. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt we have a better possession, one that's lasting, a possession that's being safeguarded for us in heaven. No one can take it from us. Beloved, that's joy rooted in the inheritance that is ours. Our Savior tells us to rejoice even when facing persecution. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they treated the prophets who were before you. Beloved, Peter wants us to know that we can and we should experience great joy regardless of the circumstances regardless of our situa situation, regardless even of, of persecutions, because nothing can take away our eternal life. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us and take that inheritance away from us. It's safeguarded in heaven. The second cause for joy, for taking joy in our salvation, is a faith that is proven. Verse 6, look at verse 6. It's important for us to get this one. Though now for a little while... If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So clearly Peter's saying to his original hearers, and he's saying to us that we can rejoice even when we face all kinds of trials. And in verse 7 we read, So that in order that the tested genuineness of your faith. So Peter here is giving us a how-to list. 
We're going to go over it right here. For dealing with difficulties and persecutions in a way that honors God. He lets us know that the trials are not going to last forever. For a little while, he says. Then he says there's purpose in our trials. If necessary, he writes. So God allows or brings perhaps even trials into our lives because he sees that we need them for spiritual growth. And then Peter tells us that our trials are going to bring hardship and discomfort when he says you have been grieved. He tells us our trials will vary. You have various trials. And he also tells us that it doesn't have to rob our joy when he says, though now, for a little while. When we're going through difficulties, through trials, through great persecution even, that doesn't mean that our joy has to be effective, be affected, that the trials have a purpose. The trials may come at us from different directions, they may bring hurt, they may bring great discomfort, but they only last a while. They come as a means to grow us, to make us more like Christ. They're a part of our sanctification. Spurgeon wrote, The steps by which we ascend to the place of joy are usually moist with tears. And he wrote this, Amid the ashes of our pain lie the sparks of our joy, ready to flame up when breathed on by the Holy Spirit. Great joy can come even in and through difficult times, our most painful times. Now, why is that? And exactly how is that? Look at verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, the trials we persevere through, validate our faithfulness, proving that our faith is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Persevering through trials results in proven faith. Persevering through trials results in proven faith. What a great comfort and joy that ought to be to us, believer, to know that our faith has been tested and found genuine. God already knows that it's genuine, but this is for us, so we can know, so we can find hope and assurance in our faith. I've heard folks say something to me like, Pastor, I'm having doubts. I'm not sure I'm saved. At least I'm not sure how, wrong, how strong, how real my faith is. See, I, I haven't faced any great difficulty. I, I've not suffered any significant loss. Unfortunately, it's only a matter of time before they will. We all, we all know that. But, but sometimes it's difficult to encourage that person much because it, it absolutely takes times of difficulty and trials to help a believer know how genuine their faith is. When those times of testing come and, and we hang in there, and we trust God, and we don't give up on our churches, and we don't give up on ourselves, and we don't give up on our church family, but we just hang in there, and we just believe that shows something. It shows that our faith is genuineness, and that ought to give us cause for great joy. Now, let's look at a third reason for us to rejoice, a faith that is proven, an inheritance that is safeguarded, and now an honor that is promised. Look at verse 7, verse 7. Peter writes, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, the proof of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor, glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We can rejoice, Peter says, at the result of our genuine faith. And the word doesn't say here that our faith will result in us praising and glorifying 
and honoring God. Of course, we will praise and glorify and honor God for all of eternity. But that's not his emphasis here. But that the result of our faith is that we may be found worthy. Stay with me now. That we may be found worthy of praise, worthy of glory, worthy of honor when Jesus returns. That's a pretty amazing thought. Pretty amazing thing to consider, to think that, that one day we're going to see the Lord and He's going to be so pleased with us that our faith is going to be praised. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Another translation says, finds favor with God. And it boggles my mind, I don't know about you, but it boggles my mind but it also gives me great joy at the same time to think that I could please God and I could find favor with Him. You remember the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25, a, a great message from Jesus about His second coming. Speaking to the servant that had gained five more talents, He said, His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. I mean, is it just me, but do you ever think much about causing God to rejoice? That we will one day, one day hear God say, Well done, Scott, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Think about that. Well done, Hassan, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And verse 23 says the same thing to the servant who gained two talents. We know that. Now look at Romans chapter 2, verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Listen now. His praise is not from man, but from whom? From God. Genuine faith, then, proven faith, gives us favor with God, will result in our being praised. Of course, now the genuine faith is not possible without God. We can't, exempt, we can't exhibit genuine faith in our own strength, in our own ability. It's a gift from God, and that means, ironically, that God gives it to us and then praises us for having it. The other term here is glory. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 7. We read, To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. So he's saying that believers are seeking glory and honor and immortality. And then in verse 10, glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. So again, we receive glory. Then Peter uses the word honor. Commentators tell us that he's most likely talking about rewards here. So honor in the form of the rewards that God gives us because of our faithfulness, our service to him. Jesus says in Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. He's coming to give rewards, beloved. Say he's coming to give rewards. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about the service that we will give and the fact that he will come to reward us. First, second John, that should be. 2 John, verse 8, causes us not to lose the, cautions us not to lose the rewards we have worked for, but that we may win a full reward. It's really an amazing thought to me that God the Father, 
who alone is worthy of praise, who alone is worthy of glory, who alone is worthy of honor, will give us all three on the basis of our tested and genuine faith. You say, well, how? man? How can that happen? Because we will in that moment in time be made in the exact image of whom? Christ. And because we are made in the image of Christ, and because we are dressed in the righteousness of Christ, and because we have been fully gifted with the perfection of body and soul that will only come to us when God's kingdom is fully consummated, we will then be worthy of praise and worthy of glory and worthy of honor, again in light of our faith tested and found to be genuine. And now think about this. The Bible doesn't say that our faith has to wait for the second coming to be found genuine. Our faith, already proven genuine, receives, or excuse me, awaits its eternal reward. There's great security in that. The proof of genuine faith, already tested, results in the honor and the glory and the praise. Again, it is a gracious thing in the sight of God, 1 Peter 2.20. So Peter's not saying that we can never know until that time we can know that our faith is genuine right now we can know and rest in the knowledge that our genuine faith will result in, in forever being with the loved ones we've lost forever being with our father forever being with our savior uh, john piper writes make your now richer and deeper this christmas by drinking at the fountain of forever it is so very near Loving what we have is a promise that is very clear. A faith proved genuine through the trials we face, and we can look forward eagerly to an eternal reward. And that ought to give us great joy, to think of what we'll have in heaven. Peter says that no matter our circumstances, no matter what our trials, we should have full joy. You and I should take great joy in an inheritance that is safeguarded, a faith that has been proven genuineness, an honor that is promised, and a fourth reason, a fourth reason for taking joy in our salvation is in personal relationship. And I believe it's got to be the most precious of all the sources of joy. It's so encouraging, so comforting, such, such a wonderful blessing to consider. Look at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Inexpressible joy. I love Christmas movies. And one of my favorite shortlists on the shortlist is the movie Elf. How many of you like Elf? I can't. Now listen, I know there's parts of that that we've got to stay away from. But maybe watch it on VidAngel, right? But Buddy the Elf, right? Remember the manager at Gimbel's? Remember that? Remember him? And the manager at Gimbel's talking. He said, it's announcement time. And he says, okay, Santa's coming tomorrow. Santa's going to be here tomorrow. And what does Buddy do? Santa's coming. Santa's going to be here. I know him. I know him. And, and the, the manager shushes him, and he, but he's uncontrollable in his joy, and he can't help himself. He whispers to a co-worker, Santa's coming. Santa's coming. He's going to be here. But where is our joy beyond words? We know him, and he's coming. Where's our great rejoicing? 
Where is our great joy inexpressible and full of glory? It ought to be here. Joy should reside and fill us and overflow from us, and there should be times when our joy is so exuberant that we can neither explain it nor contain it because we love Jesus, because we know Him, because we trust in Him, because He's coming. That's what the text tells us. We love Him and we believe in Him, though we have never seen Him. Peter's praising our love and our trust. What a profoundly deep and accurate statement of what personal relationship with Christ is all about. I believe in all my heart that the two primary components of any relationship that mean anything to us at all are love and trust. Love and trust. That's the heart, don't you believe, of any true relationship. The wellspring of joy in any true relationship. That's why Peter tells us in chapter 4, verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. That's why Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. Paul writes, You were taught by God to love one another. John writes in 1 John 3, 11, For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Church family, if love is lost, regardless of whether the cause is real or perceived, relationships will crumble. If trust is lost, church family, regardless of whether the call is real or perceived, relationships will crumble. If I, let me ask you, if I ask you which disciple besides Judas obviously, showed the weakest faith and trust in Christ, who would you say? That'd be Peter, didn't it? Had to be Peter, strongest and the weakest, right? I mean, which of the apostles of Christ, Judas aside, had to face Christ and have his love questioned? Peter. Peter was the one of whom it was said, oh, you have little faith. Peter was the leader of, to whom Jesus said three times, Peter, do you, do you what? Do you love me? Now th think for a moment how humbling it had to be for Peter to pen this verse, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, obviously. P Peter praises those persecuted and suffering believers and says to them, you've never seen him and yet you love him. And you don't see him now, but you believe in him. There's great heartache and regret to be read between the lines on those verses. I can easily imagine Peter thinking as he wrote, Man, you're so far past where I was, because even though I saw him, I walked with him, I ate with him, my love and my faith wavered in the face of trials. I ran and hid when they crucified him. I denied him when my feet were put to the fire, not once, not twice, but three times. And you've been through so much terrible persecution. You've experienced so much heartache. You've not seen him at all in the face of all that. And yet you trust him and you believe in him and you love him. Now look again at the first words of verse 8. Though you have not seen him. Though you have not seen him. That's an amazing thing to say. Because it is not unusual at all to love and trust on someone you can see, someone you can touch 
someone you can spend time with, someone you can get a chance to know personally. But these believers, just like you and me, never met Jesus Christ. They're like us in the sense that they never looked into his eyes as he spoke great truths. They never touched him. They were never touched by him. They, they never broke bread with him or walked the dusty roads of Palestine or had a conversation with him. And yet, Peter says, you love him. The verb tense in the Greek is present active indicative, agapao, meaning you are loving him. You love him and you are continually choosing to go on loving him. And that word is speaking about a love of the will. They've made a decision, you see, to love and to trust Christ, though they've never seen him. Isn't that really the heart and the source of our joy, believer? The intimacy, the closeness of the love relationship that we have with Jesus Christ? What Peter is saying here is absolutely central to what it means to be a Christian. What is a Christian if not someone who loves Jesus and goes on loving Jesus? And that's really where we need to go when we're looking at someone's relationship with Christ or our own. What characterizes our relationship with Christ? What marks it? We should be able to speak of an intimate, overwhelming love for Christ. That, more than anything, characterizes the new birth. A heart changed for Christ, loving Him. 1 John 4, 19. You know this verse. We love Him because He first loved us. Our response to Him loving us is for us to love Him. It's the heart of the Christian life, loving Christ. Jesus Himself says the law is fulfilled by loving the Lord with your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. At the close of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24, Paul writes, Grace be to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible, aftharsia, literally a pure, sincere, perpetual love. And then Peter writes, Though you do not now see him, he literally means though you do not physically see Jesus with your eyes right now, you believe in him. Even though you don't see him now, you believe in him, you trust him. So the two aspects of a relationship that matters at all, love and trust. And you remember, and I'm sure you do, John 20, verse 29, Jesus said to Thomas, because you have seen me, you believed. Blessed are those who did not see and yet have believed. Two things that bring intimacy to our relationship with Christ. We love him and we trust him, though we've not seen him. Now, what does that look like? What does loving and trusting Jesus look like when it's lived out? We have a consuming desire to see Him glorified. We have a consuming desire to see Him glorified. We've got to ask ourselves, is that our desire? Is that our desire? Do we desire above all else to serve Him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength? Do we delight in Him? Do we love to talk about Him, read about Him, fellowship with Him? Do we desire to get to know Him better? I mean, on a deeper level. Are we driven to be like Him? That's what a genuine love-trust relationship looks like. The heart of our relationship with Christ is that we trust Him and we love Him. Is that the kind of relationship 
you have with Jesus? Do you ever come out of your prayer time having spent quality time with Him, just filled with joy? Do you have joy just because you believe in Him? Because that belief gives you great confidence in your faith. Do you often feel this thrill in your heart simply because you love Him so much? We rejoice because we have an inheritance that is safeguarded, a faith that is genuine or proven, an honor that is promised, and a relationship that is person is personal. And all this gives us great joy. But look at the end of verse 8. A joy inexpressible. Sorry about that. Rejoice with joy that is joy inexpressible. What does that mean? Sam Storms writes, You'll never know this kind of joy until you can't find words to describe it. It's the joy that declares, I will not be confined to the dimensions of your mind or reduced to the definitions in your dictionary. Just like in Peter 6, in verse 6, I mean, Peter assumes that faith and love, this concrete, this real, is going to result in real rejoicing. Saving faith, you see, brings with it a joy that can't be contained. Words can't express it. it it's a joy full, reflecting our future with Christ in the moment in front of us. Again, we see that the choice to rejoice even in the middle of trials, is an act of faith. It doesn't require soaring emotions. It certainly can contribute to them. But joy flows from our confidence in the Christ that we love. That word translated inexpressible literally means unspeakable, higher than possible with speech. It's a joy so wondrous and amazing and marvelous that it surpasses speech. You cannot communicate with mere words the joy that you have. That's the only use of that word, anagleatos, in the New Testament. And then Peter adds this incredible statement describing the joy we have in our salvation when he says, and filled with glory. And filled with glory. That's joy that's animated. Made alive with joy that's not of man. It's a supernatural blessing. We're talking about love as the fruit of the Spirit. Joy as the fruit of the Spirit. We love Christ with a love that is really not of ourselves. It's a love made possible because of the glory that we've been gifted to us from the Father. We love Christ with a love that He gives us, and we rejoice with a joy in the Spirit which He gives us. And then Peter gives us one final thought, and I'll close. We have an abiding joy, a constant joy, because our deliverance is a present deliverance. So, so more than the inheritance that we have being safeguarded for us in heaven, inheritance that we will one day enjoy as heirs, and beyond the personal relationship, the intimate relationship that we enjoy right now, it's only a glimpse of how we will one day know Jesus is the present deliverance that we're now experiencing. Verse 9 says, Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. He's not talking about the future here. If he was, he would say, You will obtain. But Peter uses the present tense of komizo, obtaining, as in the here and now, literally presently receiving for yourself. So the verb's in the present tense. It's also in the middle voice. And the word means to receive what is deserved, 
to win something that's due you. And so joy, inexpressible, and full of glory is connected to verse 8, but it's also connected to verse 9. And it's stemming from that personal relationship we have with Christ through love and trust, though we have not seen Him, is the outcome of our faith, which we have here and now obtained, namely, he says, the salvation of our souls. What salvation? The ongoing, present tense deliverance that you have received and are receiving. We have this abiding ongoing, present tense salvation. That's what Peter's talking about here. The present result of our genuine faith is the ongoing deliverance which ought, to, which ought to bring us great joy. Our salvation right here and right now has rescued us from sin and its damaging effects upon our relationship with Jesus Christ, causing us to, to long for Christ. Our present tense salvation caused us as men and women of God to turn to God and turn to the things of holiness to walk in holiness, to turn from sin and all that the world says is desirable. We live here in this world for this time, and we've got to deal, yes, with everything that the world throws at us, all the enemy throws at us, but sin no longer has dominion over us. Paul tells us that we are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer in bondage to sin. And, beloved, that ought to give us great joy. Joy for the future hope of heaven, yes, and our safeguarded inheritance that awaits us there, but also joy in the present because of the ongoing deliverance that we experience. And that means that even when we face persecution and trials and difficulties, we can do so with great joy, with a real joy, because we know that God is going to ultimately deliver us from them all. There's no persecution, there's no trial, there's no difficulty that will ever come our way which the Lord will not be in the midst of with us, strengthening us to endure. Love, you see, there is no reason to ever lose our joy because we have an inheritance that is safeguarded, you see. We have a faith that is genuine and proven. We have a promise of honor if we endure to the end. We have an intimate personal relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we are in the midst of an ongoing and present deliverance. Beloved, do not miss on the, out on the joy that is yours because of your salvation in Jesus Christ. Do not miss out on that. Do not quench that. It's the greatest salvation imaginable, Dr. Piper writes. God offers us the greatest reality in the universe to enjoy and then moves in so that we can enjoy it with the greatest freedom and joy possible. And that, he writes, is a Christmas gift worth singing about. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you for our salvation. And, and we, we just confess that there are days, too many days, Father, when we, we take it for granted. We don't contemplate the gospel and its effect on us when we were saved and its effect on us now and its, and its hope for the future. We get distracted by concerns and, and issues and situations and sin. 
and we fail to allow the joy that you have given us in the fruit of the Spirit to manifest itself in our behavior. Sometimes people look at us, Father, and they, they don't see joy in us. And we have regrets for that, Lord, and we confess and repent of that. We're thankful, Father, that with your Holy Spirit residing within us and with a clear understanding of the promises that are ours in your Son, Jesus Christ, we can have a, have a joy that's resonant, that's abiding, that's real, Father, and not feigned but a joy that endures through circumstances and situations. We praise you and thank you for that precious gift, Father. And we just, we just pray, Father, as we lean into you, fill us afresh. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. We want, we want that to be our testimony, Lord. We want people to look at us and say, man, that brother, that sister's always joyous. What are they so joyous about, Father? We want that to be said of us as it ought to be. Command us to rejoice and rejoice always. Father, I want to pray for those who are here this morning and they don't know your son Jesus. They can't rejoice in him because they don't know him. They've neither seen him nor do they know him or love him or trust him. But today, Father, perhaps your Holy Spirit is speaking to their heart and they are drawn as never before to the point of commitment. And even right now, your Spirit is wooing them and drawing them to make a decision for your son Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, if there are individuals here like that this morning that just a moment when we sing this hymn of invitation, they would come down. They would leave their seat and come down here and talk to me and pray with me about what it means to know Jesus as their Savior. Father, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters who know you. They've known you for way longer than I have, Father. They've walked closely with you. They've been filled with joy many times, but right now their joy has abated. Their tank is empty. They've taken their eyes off of the prize they still love you and trust you, Father, but their joy has been sapped. Father, I pray today that as they contemplate the word that's been presented, Father, your words, your scripture that's been presented, the promises and the hope and the joy that it contains, that they would rediscover the joy of their salvation and be filled once more to the overflow with joy, regardless of the circumstances or the diagnosis or the situation or the relationship or the financial situation, whatever it might be, Father, that through all of that, they would still know true and lasting joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's come.